0: Well, hello, and welcome to this time as we go through this study of Luke. My name is Mark Bearden, and I'll be leading us through one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, uh, one that we're all drawn to, and that is the story of Peter's denial of Jesus. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to begin reading in verse 54 in just a moment, but let me begin by leading us in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And we pray as we dig into your word that you would enlighten our understanding, that you would give us hope and peace and joy as you reveal your heart to us. Guide us in this time, Father, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is the story that's very familiar to most of us. It's Peter's denial of Jesus. And oddly, it's a sad story, but it's one that constantly seems to bring hope to us as believers. Uh, Because many of us are faced with the same kind of situations. And we often find ourselves questioning our own faith and doubting. and, And Peter becomes, in a sense, a great comfort to us. So let's begin reading in verse 54, or in Luke 22. It says, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little while later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, "Man, I do not know what you are talking about." And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he was told, how he had told him, "Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times." And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now this story, Luke, condenses into a short period, but this is really probably over about an hour to an hour and a half. And and to really understand what happens here with Peter, it's just essential that we go back and we kind of trace the timeline of events that led up to this. Because this moment for Peter, and this is important to understand in the story, was not an issue of fearing death. This was an issue of a crisis of faith. And it goes back really to beginning with the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do is is walk us through a storyline here and give us context for this moment. Because if we don't read this moment in the full context, then it, then it won't totally make sense to us. Now, you remember earlier in chapter 22, uh, we have the Last Supper, and it's there that Jesus says that one of you will betray me. And each of the disciples is saying, is it I? Now, somehow they missed that it was Judas and in maybe perhaps because Judas had been put in the place of honor right there next to Jesus. But as they go out from that, they begin to argue, as they go out from the Last Supper, about who is the greatest. And uh, Jesus, in a sense, rebukes them, and he speaks to Peter, and he says this. He said, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to let him. What he says is, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And after you have turned, or in other words, after you've repented, you will strengthen others. So Jesus looks squarely at Peter and he tells him, Satan is going to sift you. Now you remember the Old Testament or the Bible times idea of sifting wheat was it was put in a container with a sieve and it was shaken violently. and, And the dust and the chaff and those things were cleared out of it. And so what Jesus, in essence, says to Peter is, Peter, you're about to be sifted. You're about to be shaken violently, and things are going to be removed from you. And he said, but I'm praying for you that your faith endures this. And what will happen on the backside of it is that you will then strengthen the faith of others. Now, Peter's response to this is, Jesus, I am willing to go to prison or to die on your behalf. So Peter carries this incredible confidence. Now let me just say, one of the most dangerous places we can ever be is in a position where we do not fear that we can fall, that we have the potential to fall into sin. And and Peter, perhaps wanting to prove to Jesus, and, and maybe even fearful, was he the one that was going to deny, wants to prove that he'll stand. And so he says, Jesus, I'm willing to even go to prison and to die for you. Now, a little while later, as they're walking along the path, Jesus quotes Scripture and tells them that the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. And, and Peter's response to that is, Jesus, even if all the rest abandon you, I will not. Now, again, you know, many of us grew up, and, and if you're a little older, you may remember this, where you would frequently hear people, even people that didn't attend church, Say this statement, there but for the grace of God go I. And if you stop and think about that statement, what it says is, I realize that any sin I see someone else doing, without God's grace, I'm capable of doing myself. And that's any sin. But Peter here, again, has that confidence, I will not. I'm not capable. And that puts you in a very dangerous place because Scripture says uh, pride comes before a fall. And our only hope for avoiding sin and avoiding failure is our utter dependence upon the grace of God, crying out to Him. And so Peter says, It won't happen even if everyone else falls. I won't fall. And then all the disciples chimed in and they said, Neither will we. You know, we won't let that happen. Well, then you remember they get to Gethsemane and Jesus separates the disciples, the smaller group of three, Peter, James, and John go deeper into the garden. Jesus goes to prayer. Uh, The three disciples there, their eyes are heavy and they sleep. Jesus has asked them, please, to stay and to pray with him, to to intercede for him. When he comes back, he finds him sleeping. And you'll notice again in that that passage there that Jesus specifically addresses Peter. And he says, Peter, could you not stay awake uh, just one hour with me? Uh, But Peter couldn't do it. He wasn't praying, he was sleeping. Then we come to that, that crisis moment where the crowd shows up. And, and you remember that that uh, this mob shows up to, to capture Jesus, and Peter ends up pulling out his sword to fight. Now it's important to understand something here. John tells us that just prior to that moment, as they arrived in the garden, that they had asked, Jesus asked them, "Who have you come to get?" And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And his response was, I am he. And John tells us with that I am statement, it came with such the power of God, the proclamation of who he was, that all those within earshot fell to the ground as though dead. We might phrase it today in our language, they felt like they got shot. And so the authority of Christ was so powerful and that statement. And Jesus knew exactly what he's saying. They knew what he was saying. Peter knew what he was saying. I am. I am God. I am the Son of God on this earth. And they all fell to the ground. And so then when they recover and ask him again, they go to apprehend them. And at this point, maybe Peter thinking, you know, I I want to prove to Jesus that that I'm with him, that I am going to be here to the death. I'm going to defend him. Uh, Peter pulls out that sword. And if you remember, he whacks off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And Jesus turns and he rebukes Peter. And he tells him to put the sword away. He said, if I wanted it to happen this way, I have the power to stop these men. I I could have called 12 legions of angels. And besides, this is what the Word of God says has to happen. Now, at this moment, Jesus then surrenders over to them. And, And I want you to understand something. At this moment, something very profound happens within Jesus and the disciples, because Jesus in essence says to the people there, you've come to get me, let these men go, and and the Bible says that the men fled, and and suddenly this this confidence that Peter has had, this willingness to stand up to a mob that could have been as much as a thousand men, and and this mob was made up of, of Roman soldiers, it was made up of... The guard from the temple, it was made up of just angry men who believed Jesus to be a heretic. They had swords, and they had clubs, and they had come for a fight. And, uh, and beyond that, it was demonically led. The man leading this group had been possessed by Satan, that being Judas. And Jesus simply turns himself over. Now, at the very moment... When Peter would have expected Jesus to assert his authority, to claim his position as the leader of Israel, to proclaim himself as the true high priest sent from God, Jesus instead simply surrenders. Now, the disciples were still in that mindset. That's why they had gathered swords and Peter had a sword. They were still in the mindset that Jesus was going to set up this earthly kingdom and, and all of a sudden, this man who G, who Peter had seen raise the dead and heal the sick and the lame and, and still storms and control nature and command fish to fill a net and, and had done all these things, this man simply surrenders to these earthly authorities. And what happened was Peter became disoriented spiritually. Now, years ago... Uh, a man named T.W. Hunt, who is a great man of prayer, used a term, that term, in, in a meeting we were in, and it really stuck with me. He, he talked about how often Christians get spiritually disoriented. And, and what that means, if you understand orientation, what that means is to be oriented is to have your wits about you and to understand where you are and to understand where you're headed. When I was in college, one of my roommates was a national orienteering champion. And that may sound odd, but it's a it's a Nordic sport where what you in essence do is you run a marathon with a compass through the woods. And and it's essential that you understand the direction you're headed and understand where where you are at the present time. That's called having orientation. And and interestingly, if you put a human in a setting like the woods where all the terrain is, is repetitive or in sand dunes, they will inevitably walk in a circle. And science have, scientists have no idea why, but some circles, they said, will be as small as 100 feet. Some might be as large as a mile, but they will inevitably walk in a circle. And so what you have to have is your wits about you to have a bearing for where you are maybe a GPS or something like that, and then a compass to tell you what direction you need. And and what also helps is to have in the distance a marker, so that marker in the distance, what it gives you is something to aim at. Now, what we find is in life that Scripture is what gives us our orientation. It, It helps us think correctly. It helps us understand where we are, and it tells us what direction we're headed and then Paul says that that marker in the distance is the return of Christ. He he says repeatedly that in light of that day I live this way, in light of Christ's return. And so what we do is we live according to the Word, we go in the direction the Word points us, and we look towards the day of Christ's return. And, And that's what having orientation is. But there are times in life where events happen that totally disorient us. Uh, it can be a small issue that just just we can't seem to get over. Uh, it can be usually a large issue, something that, that shakes our faith. It can be a question about what God is doing, why events have happened in our life. Uh, sometimes it's even deep down a question about the heart of God. Why would He allow something like this? Why did he allow this, this tragedy? And you know, Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And, and what happened was Peter had had this hope that, that Christ, along with the other disciples, that Christ was going to overthrow the Romans and he was going to set up his kingdom and they were going to be a part of it. And now suddenly the, this whole foundation that had been set up was crumbled and, and Peter was spiritually disoriented. And, and again, there are times in life that, that life will do that. It'll, it'll weaken our faith. And what's interesting now is that moments earlier when Peter had been filled with bravery, he'd pulled out a sword and he's willing to fight a mob, now suddenly fear has entered into he and the other disciples. And, and they've fled. And you know, fear is a, fear is a powerful emotion. And, and now it, it's beset into Peter. And what's happening to Peter is, as Jesus had told him would happen, was his faith is being sifted. Now remember, Satan is doing the sifting here. And Satan works by fear and by lies. And so what's happening is suddenly Peter, who had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, this was the one we've waited for, suddenly he's disoriented and questions are arising and is this true? Have I put my life into something that that isn't true? Have I given these years for nothing? What has happened? Why is Jesus giving himself over to these men? So now, as they arrest Jesus, this mob, and, and again, remember, when he's arrested, we tend to kind of put our American idea into that, that Jesus gave himself willingly, and we kind of imagine like him being handcuffed and put in the back of a police car, and he's going to go through the judicial process. No, this is an angry mob that's taken him, and their goal is not a fair trial. Their goal is judicial murder. And so as they carry him away, the Bible says that Peter followed at a distance, and Matthew tells us that he followed at a great distance. (laughs) He was trying to keep as far away as he could uh, because he was upset and disoriented. Now of all the stories in scripture it, it may be that this one for me has the greatest beauty of putting all the gospels together in it because each of the gospel writers just shares different facts or different insights about what transpires here and John is giving details and people's names about what went on and and Luke is condensing this part of it and and Matthew is is sharing from his own perspective and it's it's really just amazing Uh, to to read the four Gospels as they describe this, but they get to the house of the the chief priest. Now, there are two names you need to know here. One is Ananias. He was the former chief priest. Uh, He was retired. And the other was Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Ananias. And what happened was, as as they came to their dwelling, and, and you need to understand, this would have been an enormous housing complex because they were very wealthy men. Not only did they receive the income that they got uh, from whatever they were paid out of the temple taxes, but these men ran uh, the businesses that went on in the court of the Gentiles. You remember when Jesus cleansed the temple and he overturned the table of the money changers who were exchanging money at, at a ridiculously high rate. They were selling animals. Uh, for sacrifices that were way overpriced, well, all that money went to this family. Uh, they were business people, and so their house would have been enormous. Now, you would have entered the house through a narrow gate off the street, and it would open up into a courtyard. And was typical as was typical for Jewish homes. One side would be uh, perhaps Anias's side, and and as family members were added. Uh, annexes were added to this this courtyard around the outer edge, and Caiaphas would be on the other side. And so when they bring Jesus in, Peter lags behind. But we're told, uh, particularly by John, that one of the disciples knew the high priest. Now, we don't know how that was, but probably there may have been a distant relationship there as far as family. But John is allowed in. Now, there's a question about who that was, But I think it's definitely John, because John understates. He simply says, one of the disciples. Uh, John also uh, is always with Peter. You see him throughout the New Testament. And then also, uh, when the two men are in this complex, you don't hear John referred to. When they look and make accusation against Peter, they don't say, these men. They say, this man. And so at this point, whoever it was was not with Peter, but he was probably, again, John, because he gives, John gives more detail of the trial portion of what's going on than any of the other Gospels. So John is probably there. He's probably watching these two trials that he's facing, one before Ananias and one before Caiaphas. Now, Jewish law prohibited a formal trial from being done at night. So these two preliminary trials, what they were was an attempt ...to get Jesus to confess, to uh, to trump up charges against him. So as they arrive at the home, John is able to enter with the crowd and with Jesus. Peter, being behind, can't get in. And so the Bible says that John goes over and uh, tells this young maid... ...who is the high priest maid, who's also part of her job was running the gate... ...who got in, to let Peter in. And so Peter comes on in, and he goes into the courtyard... And he gets around the campfire there. And this is a hostile crowd. These are not people who are friendly to Jesus. And again, Peter is standing there. He's warming himself. And that context, that fullness of of this crisis of faith that Peter's in is the context for what happens next. Because as I said at the beginning, remember, Peter didn't fear death. He was willing to fight. He was willing to face those things. But now when his faith is shaking, I want you to notice that this man who would face a crowd down with a sword is undone by the words of a simple servant girl. And, and so if you look back at the Bible there, it says, After they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard, this is verse 55, And sat down together, Peter was among them. And the servant girl, now this is the high priest's maid who also is in charge of the gate, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. Now we don't know if she had seen personally Peter with him. Perhaps she knew because John had gone and let him in that he must have been one of uh, Jesus' disciples. But Peter, again, this brave, uh, proud arrogant at times disciple, now is undone by this accusation from this simple girl. And verse 57 simply says, he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Now, that, that word deny in, in the Greek means to disassociate with. And so what Peter is doing is, at this moment of crisis under accusation, and, and this, this, again, just shows the faithfulness of God to us. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Peter disassociates himself from Jesus. He says, I, I don't even know him. And in verse 58, a little while later, now again, this is, this is a longer time than as you just read through it, but a little while later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said in, intensely, Man, I am not. Verse 59, and after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean too. Now, we learn from one of the other Gospels that this man recognized this because of Peter's accent. Uh, one of the things that happened is that those who came in from Galilee, uh, where Peter was from, uh, had they were more rural, and it would be kind of like here in the United States. Often you have... Uh, People in the north who looked down at the south and noticed their accents and maybe stereotype those in the south as not being as intelligent. Well, it was the opposite in Israel. Those in the south kind of looked down on the north. And uh, they were rural people like Peter was, and he had his own accent. And so this man had heard Peter talking, and he recognized the accent and knew this man was from Galilee. And so again, he made that accusation. He's a Galilean too, In verse 60 But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Now, in Matthew, we are told also at this point that Peter begins to curse and swear. And and as you hear that phrase, and in some versions it'll say, began to give an oath. Uh, Think about those two words. See, when we think of the terms curse and swear, we think of profanity. We think of crudeness or or, uh, just bad words, things like that. But Peter began to curse. In other words, what he began to do is call a curse down on himself if he was lying to say, may I be cursed by God if I'm lying, and to swear, which is to say, I swear before God that I'm not lying. And so Peter not only denies that he knows Jesus, but he begins before these people to swear before God, I don't know him and to proclaim curses upon his own head if he's lying. Now, this is a man who is coming apart, who who is in such a, a moment of crisis that he is swearing before God he doesn't even know Jesus. This is the man who was the head, acknowledged head, of the disciples. Anytime in the New Testament you have a list of the disciples, Peter is always first. And it's because he was the acknowledged head. He was the most prominent. And the wording in the Greek in those lists is always first in prominence. So Peter led the disciples. And now this man who led the disciples, who, who proclaimed that Christ was the Son of God, who said he would never fall away, is calling curses upon his own head to deny that he even knew Jesus. And it's at that moment... That the cock crows, the rooster crows, and it's now crowed for the second time. And and I want you to know, notice what happens here. Verse 50 or 61 says, Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, quite probably remember, Jesus had been taken before uh, the former high priest. He had been questioned. Again, they're trying to find a charge against him. He was then taken over to Caiaphas. Uh, the present high priest, and again he's questioned and accused of blasphemy. And, and also in this process, the Bible says they spat on him and they punched him. And, and so Jesus undoubtedly by this time, his face was swollen and bloodied and beaten, and perhaps he's being transferred across the courtyard after the trial, but it's at that moment that Peter turns and sees Jesus, and Jesus turns and sees him, and they make eye contact. And, and Peter sees this battered face of the one he has followed for the last three years. And, and notice what Peter's response is. He remembers that Jesus said, you will deny me. And verse 62 says, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, in the Greek, that literally means he sobbed out loud. He, he was so Overcome at that moment, that he went out alone by himself, and he just out loud began to sob. And, and by Peter's personality, you can imagine, I bet it was something you could hear from a great distance away, this man sobbing uncontrollably out loud at what he had just done and at, at his crisis moment of faith and how he had failed. Now, that sorrow... That Peter carried was a godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he had rebuked them in a, in a previous letter about their sin. And he said, I, I regretted that I made you sorry. In other words, he said, I, I was kind of nervous thinking, did I, was I too harsh with you? He said, but now that I know you've repented, he said, I don't regret that I made you sorry because he said it was a sorrow under repentance. And then verse 10, he says this, godly sorrow works repentance. Worldly sorrow works destruction. You see, Judas sorrowed after he betrayed Jesus. And remember, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Betrayal is, is a proactive act. It's something you pursue, and that's what Judas did. He pursued out of his greed to, to betray Jesus. Peter, in a moment of crisis of faith, his act was responsive to what was happening, and he denied Jesus. But Judas grieved afterwards. He, he had sorrow, but it was a worldly sorrow. How do we know that? Because that passage says, worldly sorrow leads to destruction. And so Judas's sorrow, it, it, it was a worldly sorrow, a, a horizontal sorrow. It, it was a sorrow a person has when they're caught, when they're embarrassed, uh, when they feel guilt over what they've done, when they secretly grieve that they are no longer be able to carry out their sin. Uh, that's a worldly sorrow. And listen, a person can be caught in sin and sorrow, but that doesn't mean that he's repented. You know, some years ago, uh, I was helping out a ministry team, and I had come to preach there. And uh, during the time we were there, a young man on this team had been exposed. His sin had been exposed. It had come to light. And the man who was kind of leading the team had come to me, and uh, he had gone to this young man. The young man had sorrowed, he'd wept, he he had uh, you know apologized, acknowledged what had happened. And then after that, more had come out that had gone on, and people began to share other things that he had done. And so this man came to me and said, I'm about to go talk to him again. He said, do you have any advice for me? And what I told him was simply this. I said, you know, the test of repentance will be if he only confesses what he thinks you know. And I said, you know more than he knows you know. I said, so ask him to repeat to you what he had done, and then ask him this question, is there any more that you need to tell me? And I said, if there is more and he is open to telling you, then you'll know that his heart is repentant. Because you see, a repentant heart makes no demands, it humbles itself, and it wants to get clean. It, wa- it wants to be honest. And, and really, the only two proofs of true repentance are humility in the short term and change in the long term. And so when a person even weeps over their sin, particularly when they're caught, when they don't confess it, when they're caught, uh, often that can be worldly sorrow. And so the only way to know is, one, is their humility. And and, and the sorrow, the tears themselves don't mean humility. Humility is an attitude that says, I was wrong, I've sinned against God, I make no claims, I make no defense, I don't blame anybody, I I was wrong in this, and then wants to reconcile the issue, wants to go to others, wants to make it right, will do anything in its power to to right the wrong that is done. And, And so when this man talked to this young man, he did exactly that. He confessed only what he thought the leader knew. And then... Over the next days, more and more and more came out. Now, godly sorrow, on the other hand, Paul said, works repentance. And repentance, remember, is that change of mind that results in a change of direction. And and so Peter uh, weeps, he sobs, but God knew what was in his heart, and Jesus knew this was going to happen. He has been sifted by Satan. His faith has been shaken, but he's come through it. And, and interesting, remember, Jesus said in that, that, but I'm praying for you. And now Peter, having come through this, will be used to strengthen the faith of many more. Now that, that is the grace of God when we fail that when we humble ourselves, when we acknowledge our sin and come clean, and when we fall on His mercy and His grace, He is there not only to pick us up, but to continue to use us. You see, the most usable vessel in God's kingdom is the humbled vessel who knows its failures. The person who knows their vulnerabilities and, and knows, as we said earlier in this lesson, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Now, one of the beautiful things you see in the, in the last stories of the Gospels is the change that occurs in Peter. You remember after Jesus is resurrected and, and Peter sees him on the shore and he, he jumps in the water and comes to him. And afterwards, Peter is talking as they're eating these fish and he looks at, or Jesus is talking, and he looks at Peter and he says to him, do you love me? And and Peter says, Lord, you know, I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And he says again to Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know, I love you. And he says, feed my lambs. And then Jesus says a third time, do you love me? And and Peter responds. He says, Lord, you know, everything, you know, I love you. Do you hear the difference in Peter's demeanor there? You see, before Peter was, I will die for you. I will fight. Even if everybody else quits, I'm going to be there. I'm willing to do anything. Now you hear the humility in his voice. He simply says, Jesus, you know my heart. You know everything. And I just fall upon that mercy that you know my heart. And and then one other favorite passage, and we'll close with this, In, in Mark chapter 16, is when Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome go to the tomb uh, to put spices on the body of Jesus after he's been placed in there after the crucifixion. And they arrive at the tomb, and they're wondering, how are we going to roll the stone away because it weighs so much? And when they get there, the stone is rolled away. And they go in, and there is an angel, a young man, sitting in in bright white clothing. And, And he tells them, Jesus is not here. He is risen. And then he makes this statement, he says, go tell the disciples and tell Peter that Jesus has risen. Now, as you hear that, don't just get sentimental over the thought that, uh, oh, isn't that nice he used Peter's name. But think about this, an angel, the word literally means messenger. And any time angels appear within scripture, they are sent either to perform a task or they are sent to uh, convey a message from the most holy God. And so God sends this angelic being to convey a message from the heart of the God of the universe. And the message is go tell the disciples and tell Peter that Jesus has risen. And, and what's also beautiful about that is that the Gospel of Mark was dictated to him by Peter. And he's the one who gives that detail. And so I can imagine as as an old man, Peter dictating this story to John Mark as he's writing it down for the Gospel of Mark. And he gets to that point, and just the look in his eyes as he says, the angel said, tell the disciples and tell Peter that Jesus is risen. Let me say it again, that is the grace of God, that the greatest men and women used by God are those who aren't perfect, they aren't sinless, but they are humbled before Him. When they sin, they make it right, and God is gracious to use imperfect vessels. The most dangerous place you can ever be is to think, I couldn't do that. You know, years ago, uh, a very famous preacher walked into sin, and he was one of my heroes of the faith. I had read his biography; he was one of the most amazing men I, I had ever read about or heard about. And he got involved in sin. And you know, when I heard that, there were some who were mocking and and uh, just scorning that thought. But I remember falling on my face and saying, "God, that will be me without Your grace." And we all have to live that way. And the glorious thing is, it's a grace that God wants to give to us. Well, thank you for this time. I hope you relate well to Peter and his denial in those moments. God bless you.